where's the stuff? The stuff is here now. Great new day sensation. Light and free now. Get to elevation. Enough is never enough. Enough is never enough of the stuff. The stuff that it tastes that makes you hungry for more. The stuff taste that delivers. Enough is never enough. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I take a look at more recent movies out in theaters or VOD or wherever you get your new movies. You can find the link to that at the website, quipster.net. Before I get into the review that I'm going to be doing today, I do want to mention that at the end of the show, toward the end of the show, I will be talking about a couple of announcements I want to make about the future of this show that you may be interested in. So when I get to the end of the review, keep a listen, and I'll let you know about what I'm going to be doing for 2021 for Around the World in 80s Movies. As far as what I'm going to be talking about today, it's the second part of this three-part series I'm doing, looking at evil ooze films featuring some sort of slime or blob or gunk or what have you. I did the blob last week from 1988. This week, going back a few years to 1985, it's called The Stuff. The Stuff is an R-rated movie. It does have brief nudity, gory images, violence and language. The runtime is an hour and 27 minutes. The main stars are Michael Moriarty and Andrea Marcovici, Scott Bloom, Garrett Morris, Paul Servino, Danny Aiello, and Patrick O'Neill fill out some of the supporting roles. The director and screenwriter is Larry Cohen. Now, back in 1984, Larry Cohen, a veteran low-budget filmmaker extraordinaire, he created television shows, he created movies, he did black exploitation flicks, he did all kinds of low-budget horror movies as well. He made this long gestating film that he had called Special Effects, and that starred then-playwright and stage actor Eric Bogosian. That was his first film role. And on the first day of the shoot, Bogosian, he started to become belligerent. He became unmanageable for Cohen, and that led Cohen to fire him, and he hoped that he could find a quick replacement so he wouldn't lose that much money. Within about an hour, Bogosian did come back. He apologized, and he told Cohen that he is hypoglycemic. He goes crazy if he doesn't eat about every three hours or so, and so he was definitely having a bout there. Cohen understood. He made sure that from then on, he was going to have food available on the set to keep his star stable for the rest of the shoot, and they didn't have any problems after that. Now, around this time, Cohen he was somebody who regularly read newspapers. He started to get film ideas. Many of them came to him later, usually while he was showering. And he noticed that there seemed to be articles every day in the papers, some sort of product recall, something that was dangerous to the public, hamburger meat or bananas or poultry products, spinach, diet pills, medication, you name it. Somehow, almost everything <laughs> was dangerous for humans. And so he wondered why we have this Food and Drug Administration if half of the products that are out there at the market are at some point or another going to make people sick. 
when they're supposed to be either feeding them or helping them feel better. And what's worse is that these products exist at the market. Not only are they harmful, but people actually know that they're harmful and they still put them in their bodies anyway. Cigarettes, alcohol, saccharin-filled diet soft drinks. People drank McDonald's milkshakes, even though they're made of mostly of chemicals instead of ice cream, but they don't care. They taste so good, they'll still put them in their body. Now, Cohen wanted to craft a black comedy about all of these things. He was experiencing anxiety about this stuff. He wanted to make something that was entertaining that movie-going audiences would still want to watch to get his ultimate message. He wanted to deliver a pointed satire on the ridiculousness of the food and drug industry, something that he touched on in his 1974 film called It's Alive, but he didn't want it to be too heavy-handed. He wanted it to be still fun. He wanted to draw on audiences to this message with humor and thrills. So we came up with this story idea about this untested food product that goes to market and gets people addicted. And these people would become, very much like Eric Bogosian, monstrous if they don't get this food that is controlling them. And worse, once they consume too much, it will eventually kill them. It eats them as they eat it. Now, Cohen decided instead of a drug, he wanted it to be a food. And he thought that of all the foods he could think of, ice cream was the perfect choice because everybody really has positive feelings about ice cream. They might be unnerved that this is something that could kill them. He thought back to the novelty song from the 1920s that was popularized later. It became really a jazz standard. Ice cream, you scream. We all scream for ice cream. He thought it would be pretty subversive to make people really scream for ice cream. At the very least, it was an idea that had not been done before, as far as he knew. There were shades there of invasion of the body snatchers in the blob, but definitely an ice cream as the monster was something new. Now, Cohen would call this film The Stuff, and that had kind of different connotations, not only because it was dealing with a substance, nobody knew exactly what it was, but stuff is another word for drugs. Like, hey man, you got the stuff? But Cohen, like I said, he didn't want to have a satire about drugs or drug addiction, but rather this psychological examination of the addictive elements within American society itself. And people see or want whatever is advertised to them, regardless of whether it's good for them. The industry selling it really doesn't have any clue or care that there may be ill effects with their products that might be caused, whether in the short term or long term. People are no longer people. To them, they're really just this mass market from which to profit off of. The tagline of the stuff is, are you eating it or is it eating you? The addictive quality of the stuff has its own slogan within the context of the movie. Enough is never enough. Cohen concocted a comedic horror thriller with a setup it involves this ex-FBI agent. He's turned an industrial spy. He's hired by a very desperate ice cream industry to try to steal the secret formula for the stuff, which is this newly marketed yogurt-like food substance. He discovers the substance, which is found bubbling up from seemingly unlimited deposits underground. He discovers it's deadly, and humanity is going to hang in the balance as people get addicted to it. The stuff is a delicious, no-calorie dessert, Highly addictive to all who eat it. So addictive that all people want to do is to eat more of it. While it has some sort of living parasite inside that starts to control their minds as it eats them from the inside until it reproduces and the human host expires. Now, Cohen had a good working relationship with former Universal President Robert Remy, the co-chair and CEO of New World Pictures. 
Now, Remy agreed to distribute and also provide a $4.5 million budget that was later slashed to about a third of that. Now, Cohen had just a month to shoot his film, mostly on location in New York and Kingston and Manhattan primarily, with short stints in New Jersey as well as a little bit in Los Angeles. And the stuff stars method actor Michael Moriarty. Cohen had worked with him before. He was the lead of his most popular film up to that point called Q, the Winged Serpent, which came out just a couple of years before. And Moriarty was not the first choice for the stuff. Cohen originally had pursued Mandy Patinkin, but Patinkin was starting to play the lead on a Broadway show called Sunday in the Park with George, and he wasn't available. So Moriarty came in. He wore a hairpiece to make him look younger. He concocted a, kind of a personality hook to make his character somebody he had not done before. Moriarty came up with his character's name, David Rutherford, also known as Mo Rutherford, a Southern guy with a slightly comic demeanor. He had a slow speech pattern that would make others underestimate his intellect. Cohen did come up with Mo's catchphrase that he got the nickname of Mo because no matter how much you give him, he always wants Mo. Now, Moriarty came in. He basically quit the film on the first day of the shoot. He felt that Cohen had started berating this crew member too harshly for something, and he didn't want to have any more part of that. Cohen told Moriarty he, he could leave, he wouldn't sue, but the production would be severely hurt if he left, and he really didn't want him to do that. So Moriarty, after he calmed down a bit, he decided to stay, and they worked out their problems after that. Now, another time, a little bit later in the shoot, Moriarty did lose his cool, even more so than that, when Cohen put Moriarty's 12-year-old son in the trunk of this car, bloodied up, because he wanted to shoot a reaction shot for a moment when Mo opens the trunk to discover that the stuff is in there. But instead of the stuff, it would be his son looking in really bad shape, and he wanted to get that reaction. However, the guy who had the keys to the trunk of that car had to leave into town to go get something, which nobody knew about. And Panic started to set in because there was this kid in the trunk and there was no way out. Moriarty's son. So they started to rip out seats to get to the kid. And finally, before they went into full panic mode, the guy did come back with the keys. But Moriarty was livid, but he did manage to calm down and keep going like the professional that he is. Singer and actress Andrea Markovici, she plays Nicole Candle. She's this advertising executive who markets the stuff. She uses a lot of fashion models and fashionable trends to try to make it appealing, sex appeal, really. Mo romances her and then gets to see some of the inner workings of the product's production. Now, Cohen did cast Markovici because he liked her comic turn in a Woody Allen film called The Front. So she signed on board because it was different. She was tired of playing victim roles and a lot of other thrillers. She said that working on The Stuff was like dealing with two naughty boys because she was sticking with the script that she was given, but Moriarty and Cohen, they wanted to like play jazz, which is what they called improvising their way through each scene to see what could happen. And that left her really at a loss as to how to react a lot of the time. Moriarty actually did play jazz. He is kind of a musician in his off hours, and he loved riffing new music as well as improvising dialogue. So he's somebody who definitely doesn't like getting caught in patterns, and Cohen likes to encourage that when he can. Now, Markovici also kind of confirmed Cohen's belief that people would rather eat chemicals. She said she was upset to have to eat whipped cream, which is one of the substances that they used to simulate the stuff because it was fattening, but she would rather have eaten the shaving cream because that would have been no calories. But this angle on dangerous dieting is what attracted Markovici to be in the film to begin with because she had been a serial dieter pretty much her whole life, sometimes to unhealthy degrees. 
and she thought that this would be kind of a message that would be important to people like her. Now, Garrett Morris, he plays a chocolate cookie magnate modeled after a real-life one called Famous Amos. This cookie magnate, Chocolate Chip Charlie, his company's been bought out. He gets ousted. He watches his entire empire crumble since the new dessert called The Stuff has arrived. Now, Cohen had originally wanted for that role, not Garrett Morris, but up-and-coming stand-up comedian Arsenio Hall. But New Line wanted somebody more recognizable for that role, and Morris was still popular for his years on TV Saturday Night Live. Now, Morris said that he only did the stuff, not because he thought it would be a good movie, but like many of the horror movies that he appeared in during this period, he did it strictly for the money. He does wish people would forget it. The cult status of the stuff did not really change his mind. Morris glibly says that we have to question the taste of some of the American public that really thinks the stuff is actually a pretty good movie. He was not happy at all working with Larry Cohen, and he really declines to talk about him because he doesn't really have a lot of good things to say. Scott Bloom plays Jason. He's this young boy who sees the stuff seeming to move on its own in his refrigerator, and he gets very turned off to the possibilities of this. But then he sees the rest of his family eat this thing and then fall under its insidious spell one by one. Scott's real-life brother, an actor as well, Brian, he plays his older brother in the movie. Now, Brian, he's shown playing the home version of Zaxxon, and kind of coincidentally, he became a highly sought voice actor for many video games over the years and some cartoons, and he also happened to write several games in the Call of Duty series as well. So that early start with the video games, I guess, paid off for him for a career. Paul Servino, he's cast here after Cohen ran into him in this restaurant called Columbus in New York. That's where actors regularly frequented and asked if he was interested in a part in his film. Servino said yes. He took the role of this ex-military crackpot named Colonel Malcolm Gromit Spears, who uses his private paramilitary militia to take on the stuff after being convinced it's part of some sort of communist plot to take over America. Sorvino had this habit of entertaining the cast and crew when he was off camera. He burst into his own opera songs to try to keep everything lively and engaged. Now, Sorvino's teenage daughter at the time happened to be on the set. Cohen asked if she'd like to be in the movie. She said, of course. She put on a yellow uniform and played one of the factory workers where they packaged the stuff. And it became her first film experience for a young Mira Sorvino. Now, in the film, Mo visits this representative from the Food and Drug Administration. The FDA gave the stuff a pass to put out to market without really seemingly any testing at all. This FDA rep is played by Danny Aiello, who Cohen also met at Columbus, the same place he met Sorvino. The character has this great Dane that seems to be addicted to the stuff, and in one of the worst examples of a dog attack, kills the Danny Aiello character by wagging his tail and licking him. He really is a sweet dog, and they couldn't really get him to act in any way menacing other than his size, I suppose. Now, Cohen had a a real reputation of being a temperamental director, and that certainly was the case with the stuff. Often, Cohen could be very open, very encouraging. He was willing to let his actors improvise to their heart's content, and he would often yell out things of his own that he thought that they should improvise as they came to him during their scenes. He edited all of their riffing afterward to try to make some sense out of it. Other times, though, when things were falling behind schedule-wise, he could be very demanding, very unwilling to stop and listen to his actors or his crew. He became very rigid about what he wanted, usually because he wanted to catch up. Cohen does describe his outbursts as necessary. Cast and crew, they would sometimes grow complacent on a very relaxed set that he tried to have. 
So he had to really bark harder once in a while to get the point across that they need to do something. Now, many of Cohen's films were to a large degree self-financed, so really it was money directly out of his pocket if they were going to be wasting time. So he had a personal interest in making sure that they did not. The actors also claimed that Cohen was having such a good time making the stuff that they had less of a good time. He continued to want to work on the film very long hours, sometimes very early the next day. They didn't get a lot of sleep. He really pushed them to try to squeeze out additional scenes. They were all very tired at the end of the day, but he just wanted to keep going. And Moriarty says that Cohen had this real technique of getting on people's good sides. For him, Cohen had a really dead-on impression of Ed Wynn, Edwin, the actor and comedian who has a very distinct voice that's often used in cartoons and such, but Moriarty really said that he sounded more like Edwin than Edwin himself. Now, despite some rough patches, Moriarty did happen to appear in four of Cohen's movies. This was his second, but he also appeared in an episode of Masters of Horror that Larry Cohen did sometime in the mid-2000s. Paul Glickman, he came in, he served as both cinematographer as well as primary camera operator. This was his fifth collaboration with Cohen. For the opening scene, there was an unexpected snowstorm that came in. Cohen was happy with the production value of that snowstorm, so it was kind of a blessing in disguise for him. But Glickman did point out that the equipment was really not made for a snowstorm. And sure enough, lights began to blow out, camera equipment started shorting out, the cables lacked proper insulation. They took a lot of damage from the moisture. But Cohen said, keep shooting, get as much footage as they can, because simulating such a thing would be much more costly. Whatever equipment was still working, just keep it going until they just couldn't anymore. Makeup effects were handled by Steve Neal, who worked on several Cohen films, and Rick Stratton, who who was known at that time for working on the TV miniseries V, as well as Michael Jackson's music video for Thriller. The stuff, depending on its use or the amount needed, consisted of either ice cream or yogurt or tofuti or whipped cream or custard. Sometimes it was mashed potatoes with baking flour flakes or shaving cream or liquid cement or, in the worst case, fire extinguisher foam, which was made out of some sort of fish and animal bones that really gave this odor that made everybody gag. So much so that people at the end of the shoot would jump in the Hudson River, not really known for being something that really smells good. It's a polluted river, but they would jump in the Hudson River at the end of the day with their costumes on to try to get that stinky smell out. A couple of the crew actually put on rubber undergarments. They wanted to ensure that this stench did not seep into their skin long-term or maybe permanently, they thought. Now, Cohen sought Jim Danforth to provide some stop-motion animation for the stuff, but his asking fee was too high, so he hired David Allen, who he had worked with on Cue the Winged Serpent. Allen was skeptical that he could create liquid movements with stop-motion, as Cohen requested. He thought that traditional animation was going to work better, but Cohen wanted real-looking textures for the stuff. So Allen crafted miniature sets to move this moldable plastic around in front of a stationary camera and hoped that that would suffice. But Cohen was disappointed when he saw Alan's work because it looked too mechanical. It looked like a wind-up toy was beneath the scoop. And Cohen regretted eventually not paying Danforth the additional money he had requested early on because of what Alan was producing. Alan, though, accused Cohen of poor communication with him and his technical crew. They were working in Burbank while the shoot was in New York. So they needed real communication, which Cohen didn't seem to give. And Cohen seemed to expect work to be done in hours instead of the days that were necessary. And then he grew frustrated whenever he'd check in to find that they had only done a few seconds of completed work at the end of the day. Now, as the effects were not ready when they were needed, 
some of the work needed to be farmed out to others, including to Jim Danforth, who did some of the animation, the stuff oozing down the hallways at the end of the film and the climactic explosion at the factory. A lot of others were called in. A, a special effects company called Effects Associates were involved. They would sue Cohen just a few years later in 1990 for refusal to pay full compensation because Cohen did not like the work, the animation and the effects work that they did in this film, and he refused to pay them the full amount for what they turned in. He did not think that it was very good, and Cohen actually prevailed in defending this lawsuit. The sequence where Moe and Nicole deal with the stuff in a hotel room, a famous scene, if you see this film, they utilized a room that could rotate upside down so that when the stuff would pour out, it looked like it was going up into the walls. And, and that was done by the technical wizards who actually built a very similar set for a sequence in A Nightmare on Elm Street, also in Break Into Electric Boogaloo. But contrary to what you might read on the internet trivia, it was not the exact same room that was used in Elm Street. That had been demolished since, but the mechanism that was used to rotate that Elm Street room was the same. The difficulty of the scene is that the room was made to catch fire, and that made it especially dangerous, but Cohen was really doing some sort of bravado here. He wanted to make it work, and in the end, it did. Cohen did, in the end, have arguments with New World Pictures. They had a preview in Santa Monica. It was filled primarily with young people, and the young people were just not vibing on it. They were not into it. They gave it pretty low scores. New World sensed that they might have a dud on their hands at the end of this, and they blamed the film for being just too much conversation, too much characterization work, not enough horror. So an outside editor was brought in by New World, and 10 minutes were removed, including many of the parody commercials that Cohen had wrote and staged and shot. They were going to be put at the beginning of this film to kind of set the table for the stuff and how it was marketed. New World thought that there was too much comedy, not enough horror in this film, and it slowed the film's pacing, so they suggested instead just sprinkle a few commercials throughout the film instead of just bogging it down at the beginning. One of the commercials that did remain in the film features Clara Peller. She was uh, Wendy's phenomenon. She was the one who said, where's the beef? And she also Abe Vigoda. He did a parody commercial with her that is kind of in the middle of the movie. Cohen at the time claimed that Cohen at the time actually really liked Clara Peller. He, he liked her so much he planned to develop a project for her in the future. But in the end, he realized he spent a lot of money getting her and it really didn't give them the publicity that he was hoping for. So instead of her trademark, where's the beef? Peller does say in here, where's the stuff? An explanation of the stuff being an, an organism from outer space, that was intended for this film. It was mostly removed because Cohen liked this idea that the stuff instead of being this alien organism, was somehow made by the Earth. It came from the Earth as a revenge for all of the damage that had been done to the environment for the sake of money, kind of turning the tables here, Earth getting revenge by putting out a product that people want to make money on, but that would destroy humanity. There was another love scene between Mo and Nicole that was in a hotel room that was excised, again, for pacing issues, and they also slashed the marketing budget at the end of this film and the number of prints that were meant to be pushing out to theaters. They opted not to hold press screenings, so positive reviews when they did come in, they were after the film had already been in release. The critics actually liked this film for the most part, but it was too late to make much of a difference by the time it had already hit theaters and it kind of disappeared without much of a trace. Now, Cohen also blames the lack of success 
due to marketing this especially like a horror film instead of as a black comedy or a satire, and that led the public who did go out to see it to feel misled, and so word of mouth was not kind there either. Cohen had a lot of marketing ideas of his own that didn't get used. For instance, he wanted to set up this dummy company to market the stuff as a real product. The next big dessert item, he would line up celebrity endorsers like George Plimpton or Tammy Grimes to appear in TV spots. He also wanted to push out clippable supermarket coupons that people could get in the paper. They, he wanted to drum up demand for the stuff. He wanted people to go out to the market and ask people where they could get this product that they had seen either on TV or in the paper. Cohen also wanted to hire helicopters to scout locations at the 10 biggest airports in the country. Billboards were going to be placed on buildings so captive audiences flying in airplanes could see these ads for the stuff on their way up and down to the airport. He also wanted to have giveaways, swag items available for people at the theater, including selling cups of ice cream that was in a container that said the stuff inside for sale. However, New World... They didn't want to get into that because they didn't want anybody to get sick on their product, whether because there was something wrong with the item or maybe they just thought that they ate the stuff and started feeling sick psychosomatically. But they also thought that all of these ideas were too financially risky. They didn't want anything out of the ordinary. They just wanted to market it just like any other film that they had done and been successful with. Now, unfortunately, as fun as the commercials are in this film, I do think that the story for the stuff does work better as a social satire than it does as a horror movie or even as a comedy if you're expecting laughs. There is kind of a slapdash nature to the stuff, which is a trademark of Cohen's style, really. I mean, it's kind of a, an acquired taste for a lot of people. Cohen freely admits that he is more of a big picture thinker than he is a meticulous planner when it comes to how scenes should be placed or what happens to characters. Oftentimes, characters are in this film and they disappear and you don't know what happened to them. That's certainly the case for many of the characters in the stuff. Uh, the actors here, I do think, are very solid. The characterizations, though, are wafer thin. The relationships feel very manufactured, very superficial in the way that they develop. I do think that as a movie, it leaves a lot to be desired. There's a lot of ideas here that are certainly intriguing, and it's a hard film for me to dislike, even though I don't think it's a particularly good film if you're judging it by the traditional standards. I do think that instead of being a full-length movie, it probably would have made for an excellent episode of something like a Twilight Zone-type anthology, because it's really not funny enough or scary enough to deliver what anybody who is looking for either laughs or either scares may be wanting beyond the unique premise and the kind of oddness of the delivery. So in the end, I do think the stuff is an intriguing film. One I like, despite the fact that I don't necessarily think I would recommend it to most people. If you're into B-movies, certainly you're going to be much more forgiving of this. Cult movies from the 1980s, but mainstream moviegoers will probably not appreciate a lot of what is in the stuff, enough for them to be as invested in this movie beyond its initial premise. It's a fun movie to think about, to hear about, but it's not as much a fun movie for some people to sit for 90 minutes once they get the main premise. So two and a half stars out of four is what I'm going to be giving the stuff. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that it had the tools, it had the talent to be a film I could recommend to most people. And that thing that it's missing, as I mentioned, is a real emphasis here on characterizations, on plot, etc. So it results in a very uneven delivery, one I can't quite get behind fully enough to give it more than two and a half stars out of four. Now, Cohen did intend to follow up this horror satire with one done on health food. It was going to be called Fit to Kill or F-I-T to Kill 
but the lack of financial success of the stuff did make it a hard sell project and he was never able to quite make that so anyway the stuff if you have your own thoughts on the stuff you can write to me you can find my contact information at my website that's at quipster.net q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net if you have facebook twitter instagram what have you you can also find links to all of my presence there and you can write to me there as well email i do encourage you if you really want to say more than a few words to get in touch with me. Now, as far as what I was going to be talking about, as far as the future of this show, this episode happened to come out a couple of days later than usual, and that's going to be the norm from here on out. Now, in 2020, because there were not a lot of films coming out in theaters, I took all of the time that I normally would spend on my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and I really poured it into Around the World in 80s Movies. I put so much time and effort into that that now that we're starting to shift toward getting more movies into theaters through 2021, I really can't do both shows and still feel I have the commitment to the kind of bar that I set for myself for 2020 for this podcast. In essence, what I'm saying is that I'm going to go for quality instead of quantity. So my reviews for this podcast will not be weekly anymore. As far as when I'm going to be putting them out, I'm not going to do it bi-weekly because that might be too long, but I'm just going to put them out when I'm done with them. Whenever I'm done researching and writing and editing and what have you, I'm going to package it together. It's just going to get released. It could be as short as five days between shows. It could be as long as 10 days, somewhere in there. But I've gotten a lot of feedback, very positive feedback as far as the shows that I've done in 2020. And I want to keep a commitment to that quality. In fact, so much so that any show that I did before 2020, I probably at some point will redo. So some of the early episodes where I didn't get into a lot of the history of the stuff, I just talked about mostly what I thought about the film. I'm going to revisit those somewhere down the road when the opportunity arises. I hope that you are as excited for the possibilities as I am. If you have your own thoughts on this decision, I do encourage you to reach out to me. You can find my contact information on my website. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well... I covered a John Carpenter film not too long ago with The Thing. I'm going to cover one more featuring Evil Ooze, Prince of Darkness from 1987 on the next episode. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I do encourage you to do so and you'll get that episode when it comes out. Anyway, until then, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies.